There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. And helping us move from awareness to action this week is Mr. Charles Keller, the founder and president of the Colton Cowell Foundation. Welcome, Charles. Guys, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, excited to have you. Centauri, do you have a favorite Batman character? Every time you ask me, like, I think I know what you're going to ask me. Um, <laughs> um, I don't have a favorite. I, I like Batman. I mean, I think Batman would be my favorite out of all of them. Is that a good answer? Yeah, that's certainly, that's 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 absolutely, uh, that absolutely counts. So, appreciate that. Well, Charles, how in the world did, 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 well, let's, let's just back up. Tell us, tell us a little bit about you and, uh, and, and how the Colton Cowell Foundation came to be. Sure. Well, uh, glad to tell the story. It's always uh, kind of fun to spin the yarn with this one. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, originally from uh, Portland, Oregon, transferred to Arizona State to go to college and say for a few years on the East Coast, working in government and politics, have been in the greater Phoenix area ever since. Um, the story of the foundation is one of the things that I've, I've always really enjoyed about the tale is how organic it is. None, none of this was <laughs> kind of uh, thought out ahead of time, it all has just unfolded over now about a decade. But back in 2003, my boys were three and five for Valentine's Day. I got them a DVD set of the original TV show from 1966, and I marveled at how much fun those kids had watching it every night. They'd make their own costumes, they'd nice. use beach towels to make uh, capes, and they'd swing an imaginary characters. And so, being a good dad, <laughs> I thought the only reasonable thing to do was to start learning more about Batmobiles. And so that summer, after they started watching the show, I did what is probably the probably the most improbable thing you can do. I spent much of that summer crisscrossing the country test driving 1966 Batmobiles. Wow. And finally found the Batmobile of my dream, which <laughs> didn't run all that well, but it ran well enough in, uh, in a suburb of Houston, <laughs> Texas. Found it on Craigslist, of course. You can find anything on Craigslist, it does turn out. And so I brought it out. The original plan was just to, you know, take the kids for a spin, go down to Dairy Queen, play the theme song over and over and over, let them wear their outfits, get a blizzard, drive back home, and that was going to be it. Um, the story uh, uh, took a turn. I'd, I'd owned the car for about six or seven months, and I guess word about that sort of stuff kind of leaks out because every once in a while the phone would, would ring with the question, are you the guy that owns the Batmobile? Yeah, right. I am. Well, in December of 2009, I got a call from a Make-A-Wish wish granter, the family for whom she was granting a wish, told me, listen, the kid is in bad shape. He's going to be uh, treated by hospice starting in a few days. They're uh, releasing him from the University of Arizona, Tucson, and could you be there the night hospice shows up 
to lighten the mood. And I said, well, of course I'll be there. Wow. And so that was how I met Colton Cowell, who was a three-year-old leukemia patient and his entire family. Um, to tell the story, I, I'll just tell you the most important part of that story, which was, you know, I went down, took Santa Claus with us. Santa did about 30 minutes and then we put Colton in the car. They went for a five minute ride. He and his dad did. And when they came back, his dad, very, very emotional, uh, crying and Colton had been very sick all night. All of a sudden was just illuminated like the Christmas tree in his living room. Happy, happy, happy. Um, so I, I left that night going like, wow, I really witnessed something, but what really brought it home was two years later, I got a call from his mom, Erica Cowell, who now serves as the executive director of our foundation. And she wrote one thing, but I read another. What she wrote and told me was that she was putting together all of Colton's belongings, the pictures, all the memories, and putting them in boxes so they could be properly stored and the family could go back and enjoy them in future years. And and what she said in the letter was, you know, for all the time Colton was sick, which was most of his life, the only night that everybody smiled was the night that the Batmobile came. But what I read was the only night that everybody smiled was the night hospice came. And the Batmobile was the thing that helped to take away the sting and make a much better memory out of otherwise what would have been a very, very tough night. And so with that in mind, over the years, we have gone about the business of building a 5,000 square foot facility. Um, we've now been host to 514 different families. Wow. And we have much bigger plans for the future, which we can also discuss. But it's it's been an extraordinary journey, and it's just been it's been great fun. I've always wanted to, you know, give back, but this is a way that I can do it, which is really uh, kind of in sync with my sense of humor and the way I the way I look at the world. So um, it, it's a great way to give back. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it. it's 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 amazing, and what a life is a funny thing. <laughs> so, who? Who who would have thunk it, right? Um, what 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 was your work before? And I mean, it's such a crazy thing transitioning from the from the for profit world to to the non profit world. What, what's 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 been the biggest challenge there? Well, I, I don't know that I've necessarily found it a, to be a challenge. I mean, I consider myself to be so fortunate. Really, I've had four careers, if you will. I, I started out of uh, college, kind of a fun anecdote, uh, backpacking after college. I was uh, in Berlin and actually was in the crowd and listened to Reagan give his Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech. Wow. And in part because of that, I'd always been interested in politics and uh, especially at the national level. But after uh, returning from uh, Europe, I applied for, got an internship on Capitol Hill and eventually ended up working for the George H.W. Bush, gosh, I hate to age myself like that, but the H.W. <laughs> Bush uh, national presidential campaign uh, worked up on the eighth floor with luminaries such as George W. Bush, uh, Lee Atwater, James A. Baker III. It was extraordinary to be um, in that circle. And certainly, I was I was a very very small fish, but just to be there was exceptional. And then I uh, worked for the administration by uh, serving at the Republican National Committee as a, a chair or as a um, advance man to. Chairman Lee Atwater, which could be a, a, store, a whole show unto itself. Um, after that, I did return to Phoenix. Um, I uh, was uh, trained in real estate. That was my degree at Arizona State, but ended up going into securities work. 
uh, really worked at uh, Charles Schwab for about 10 years, which I enjoyed immensely. Even in college, uh, I enjoyed reading ancient books about uh, finance, economics, investing, you know, books that were written in the 16, 17, 1800s. For some reason, that really uh, clicked with my brain. And uh, by working at Schwab and really being on the phone, talking to customers day in and day out, I learned the two most important things about investing. Of course, the economics are important, but equally important in investing, in my view, is the psychology of all of it. And boy, if we're not seeing that today, I don't know what we're seeing. People are, of course, uh, scared. They They don't know what the future portends. And I think that makes it a lot more interesting to look at investments from that angle. But having done that for about 10 years, I finally grew weary of it. Um, I quit my job at Schwab without really knowing what I was going to do next. And this was um, when our our first son, Chaz, was uh, still in the womb. And I thought, well, you know, I got to be a good dad. I got to start learning how to do digital video, digital photography, so, you know, I can chronicle their lives. And so I got a Dell computer, which I couldn't get to work. And then I got an Apple computer, which worked perfectly. (laughs) And while most people buy an Apple product and they'll tell you about the amazing things they can create with it, how incredible the engineering of the product itself is, the lines, how cool it looks. uh, I've got a numbers driven brain and I, I started looking at the finances of Apple and I could not for the life of me figure out why the, the company was so cheap. And what it boiled down to was I thought that, okay, the, the company that, controls 99% of the computer market, in my experience, their product doesn't work at all. I can't get to download a single photo. I can't get to send (laughs) a single email. And then I have this Apple computer and two weeks into it, I'm not calling technical support anymore. And I'm like, this could be one of the greatest investment opportunities of all time. Well, not having the smarts to go to one infinite loop uh, in Silicon Valley, I, I just went down to the Chandler Fashion Mall, far away from my home, and interviewed for a $9 an hour job in front of the Orange Julius, hoping that I would get the job and have the opportunity to speak to Apple customers. And I outsmarted all the other 17 year olds applying for the job, got the, <laughs> got the gig, and up and on for the next seven years, I worked retail at Apple. Uh, occasionally my pay made it over $10 an hour, that kind of made me upset when it did, but I, I, I just wanted to talk to customers to see if it was a good investment. I learned very early on that my thesis was backed by everything I heard uh, from everyone I spoke to, particularly customers. And so I started to, in 2003, buying shares of Apple stock. And by by staying there, even at that low level, I like to say, you know, you can learn a lot about a company by being in the ivory tower, but you can also learn a lot by being on the loading dock. So I saw my job as working on the loading dock, trying to know as much about the company as I could. And so even, you know, during market pullbacks or times where people became upset about uh, Apple's um, uh, future um, future profits, I just saw what was going on in the ground. And I said, no, this remains an, an incredible investment. And I hold it to this day. And if you hold Apple stock from 2003 long enough, it helps pay for a crime fighting cave. <laughs> Charles, I love that. I, I okay, gotta ask. long silence, guys. <laughs> no, I love it. Are you staring at each other going, WTF. <laughs> I, I, my question is, though, Charles, how many what is the usual reaction to that story when you tell folks? You know, the better reaction was when um, so, you know, over the seven years I worked at Apple, the one that I always loved, um, you know, I, I, over time I worked at various Apple stores within the valley. And, and obviously, when you think of it, there is not anymore an Apple store in Phoenix. 
they are all in suburbs of Phoenix. But for a long time, I would work at the uh, store at the Biltmore, which is um, really walking distance from my house. I'd usually drive, but I could walk it if I wanted to. And um, a lot of times people would, would come in, particularly, you know, moms from school, just like, are aren't aren't you Chaz and Cade's dad? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you work here? I sure do. <laughs> it was, they would look at me like I was from Mars, but I knew exactly what I was doing. And it, nice. it turned out well, I'm happy to say. I love that. I love the idea of really being intentional about like finding a passion and then really working it through. I'm assuming that you're still a, an Apple, a Mac owner today. Like you, you, that, those are the products you use. That is um, every every audio. Not only do I use nothing but a- Apple, but every audio visual trick that we employ down at the cave is all powered by used Apple equipment that I have retired and just given to the foundation. I love it, Charles. Um, what would be interesting is, is someone I, I have personally been on. Um, I think three of the experiences down at the cave. But I'd love for you to talk about, especially now, given that. Many nonprofits, many experiences have had to move to virtual, um, virtual mm-hmm. engagements. How has that been and what's the transition been like? And what do you foresee this? What do you foresee COVID having as a long term impact on your work? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, like so many, I, I don't think I'm at all unusual in this. I, I'd never even heard of Zoom in early March. And I think actually the first call I was on with, was with you, um, Centauri, and you know I didn't even know what I was doing. I, I I was unintentionally broadcasting pictures of my broken foot in my bedroom all over America. <laughs> I was doing it, um, but you know it's it's uh, fairly easy to master. And you know over time, as we started to think about you know what are we going to do, it's like well maybe something we could do is we could do virtual programming, and so. Uh, we picked up the phone and spoke to a lot of the charities uh, we've partnered with over time. The very first one I ever partnered with almost 10 years ago as uh, uh, Hope Kids, which is actually a national organization with many chapters, but um, there are Phoenix chapters close to my heart. They're the first one who ever partnered with me in any way, shape or form. Um, and we floated a balloon with them. Hey, do you want to do you want to try and do virtual tour? Uh, cave tours uh, with um, some of the kids in your program and hope kids like us uh, principally focuses on families that are suffering through pediatric illness. And so, you know, it's still a work in progress, but we've now done five virtual performances from the cave. Oh, wow. Um, And, and, you know, to kind of give your your listeners a, a, a little bit of background on it, you know, essentially what happens during a performance, which I know Centauri can uh, uh, attested this is that you can't, I, I can't really describe to you what it's like. You really have to live through a cave performance. People think it's just like, you're going to go for a ride in a car and no, you're really transporting time back to 1966. Um, we tried to make it almost a Disney esque experience, uh, which is very interactive. It's very focused on the family being together and having a great time together. Uh, we tried to teach important lessons about, um, hope for the future, about the importance of giving. Um, so really is it is very complex. But, you know, we, so we spoke to spoke to Hope Kids and said, would you be willing to do that? And so they sent out a blanket email across the country to all their chapters. And so we've now done, I believe it's either three or four. I might be a little bit off on that, but three or four programs. We had one, I think it was last week, where we had 53 families from six different states take a tour of the cave. Um 
so to date, you, you know, you asked your question about how is this all going to affect us in the future? And, um, you know, there's so many things that we could be pessimistic about on this call and, and day to day. And, I, you know, I got stuck in that rut like everybody else. But to kind of look at it from a positive side, one of the things that we've always been constrained by is that we've only had the imagination to do physical shows where the family and their friends are there and they're touching everything. Well, when you start thinking for more than a week or two about the Zoom platform, it kind of opens you up to all sorts of possibilities. So some of the things that we're starting to contemplate, we don't have any firm date set up, but who's to say that we can't do these shows for pediatric hospitals all over the country? Sure. Oh, wait, there's no oh, limitation wow. geographically. You could do these all over the world. Um, up to this year, what we have always done is we've had an eight-month season because over the hot summer months here in Phoenix, it's too tough on the equipment, certainly too tough on the uh, the children, particularly the nominated children that aren't feel, feeling well. So we just shut down and we would have no programming over the summer. Well, now we can take those four months and we can find other charities in other cities. Uh, maybe we will get requests from individual families uh you know, hither and yon. And so we will be able to not just use the physical facilities we have in the past, but this could potentially exponentially increase the audience that we have and the number, most importantly, the number of people we can help. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. The uh, ability to, to, to get that right and to figure it out and to be able to utilize the incredible physical facility you have with technology. And, and then to your point, you know, the, the, the sky's really the limit. So I think that's really exciting. Something that, that as, as, as you're talking, I, I, I know that you have, you, you, you have kids. I've got, uh, I've got a three and a half year old and a six month old. And I used to be pretty, uh, a pretty tough guy. I didn't cry very much, but until my three year old came along and now I'm just a softy and everything makes me cry. Putting myself, no. in, in, pu- putting myself in your shoes, um, I just from a very practical standpoint, it must be very difficult. And how, how, how has that been dealing with with bringing happiness to, to sick kids? Um, so I will tell you that one of the reasons that this all works and particularly the reason that it works for me is when we have children come to the cave, they forget they're sick. That's what happened to Colton. I mean, we, we, we base all this on the, the model of what happened mm-hmm. the night I showed up at Colton's house. And when I showed up and I first strapped him into the car, I had one of the few moments over the last 10 years where I was ashamed. Looking back at it, I'm ashamed of myself. Um, when I strapped him in, he was bald. He was bloated. He was lethargic. He was ashen. He was, in my mind, a cancer patient. He yeah. was his disease. And as I mentioned before, you know, after he and his dad came back and he's, he's lit up, I'm like, wow, that's 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 amazing. He looks he looks wonderful. He had color in his cheeks, and he was just so excited to do do this with his dad. And by the way, he had Down syndrome, so he couldn't speak. So his communication with his dad is in sign language. And so I had to have Earl, who's sobbing, tell me what he's saying. Yeah. Uh, there was one we did many years ago. It was for a young man uh, named Jacob Martinez. And uh, Jacob, if you come to the cave, you'll see Jacob's uh, picture up on the wall. We got a call. It was from Hope Kids, and they said Jacob has just a few days left, and we would really like like to get him in the cave. Uh, normally, what we do it's a, about a two hour experience, but of course, in these instances, you know, kids have very very limited energy. 
Uh, part of the gig is we send out a limousine whose real Arizona license plates read Mr. Wayne. Nice. And BW glassware etched inside the whole bit. But I called, got a call from the limo driver who had uh, the Martinez family in the backyard, and he's whispering to me, and he says, I don't think this is going to work. And I said, well, why? And he said, uh, Jacob's in a lot of pain, and he's screaming, and he's crying. And I said, well, just get your three minutes out. Just come here. If it doesn't work out, we'll put them right back in the limo. We'll send them home. We'll get their car to their house. We'll send over dinner, whatever. But just get here, and we'll try. And so we got out, and with, you know, we, we really truncated the show, got him uh, directly into where the, all the action was. And within a minute or two, he was with his mom. When he came in, he was just slumped in his dad's arm, went to, went to mom. They went inside. They started playing with some of the antiquated, uh, very analog equipment that we have. And he'd throw a switch here, and he'd turn a button. And that. then all of a sudden, he was standing on, under his own power and doing the same thing and kind of liking that. And so then, um, you know, very, very quickly, we got him in the Batmobile. Uh, the same Santa Claus that came to Colton's house, who um, has participated in almost all of our 911 shows over time, he showed up and we put him behind the Batmobile and we let him uh, drive Jacob outside. And, and there was a photographer there and they click, click, got Jacob's first smile. Mm. This is maybe like seven, eight minutes after he arrived. I mean, we were wow. like, long. And so uh, one of the uh, things, you know, don't tell too many people, but they do all get also get to go for a ride in what we call the crime fighting cycle, which is uh, Harley Davidson with a sidecar on it. And so we put Jacob in that and he started using the handlebar as if it was a throttle and, you know, <laughs> rotating his wrist really hard and going vroom, vroom. Yeah. And he was he was just having a ball. And so somebody, I think, came to me and said, what do we do? And I said, let him go in the cycle as long as he wants to or can. And so we just oh, kept going. Amazing. in circles. And then somebody, I, I, we have some unmarked squad cars. We always have a Phoenix uh, police officer present at every show. And I was just driving one of the squad cars to, uh, just for extra lights and sirens and fun. And, and um, we had a videographer there that day to capture it. And he came up to me and he said, have you seen his dad? And I'm like, no, is he okay? What's going on? He says... He's pacing against the side of the building and looking at his feet as he's shuffling and muttering to himself over and over. He's laughing. He's smiling. He's forgotten. He's sick. He's laughing. He's smiling. He's forgotten. He's sick. So um, three days later, you know, the story does end. And three days later, Jacob passed. But the great thing about my job is that thankfully, because I don't think I would be able to do that job of sitting by the sick child's bed. Um, as they pass, as they're in pain. You know, the only memory that we have collectively as an organization of Jacob is that smile and the absolute astonishment of his father mm -hmm. that his child was as happy as, as he was. And so one of our many goals, and we have serious goals. We're, you know, a lot of people, and it's easy to get sucked in by this, that, oh, they, you know, it's a comic book thing and they've got a Batmobile and it's not really serious. No, not so. We've really, really thought this stuff out. And so one of the most important things that we do as an organization is that we're able to give families this incredible memory. We were able to do it for Colton. We were able to do it for Jacob. We've been able to do it for hundreds of families where they're able to take what can, for many of them, be a many year long experience filled with, you know, we're all getting sick of being quarantined, right? I've been talking to hundreds of families over the years that get quarantined for years and they don't get to write mm. at all. That's just what they have. The, what we're living through now is like one one hundredth of what they have to do. And um, 
but we're able to give them that one memory where they can look back and see something positive, see it where the, the child smiled. It, it, you know, if we're not we're not doing our job right, if at the end of the night, the, the child isn't laughing and smiling, the mom isn't shedding tears of joy. That's that's just part of our soul. I love that. Incredible. Charles, um, I, I'm glad that you put that, the, the, the anecdote about this is something that, that, that they live with all their lives. And so having just, I, that was really powerful to have that perspective of what we're currently going through. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad, but you get to interact with families where this is their full time. This is their life. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if you haven't been down to the cave, it truly is uh, a transformative, remarkable experience. And it's what I love about it and what makes it so unique is that to Charles's point, it really is about empowering the child and empowering the families. Like when you're there, there's not a sick kiddo. It's just someone having fun with their friends, with their family. And, uh, I, I don't think we realize how powerful that can be for those kids. And, and you know, funny enough, you know, so I've been doing this for 10 years and, you know, sometimes you're, you're so close, you, you, you can't see it yourself. I, I didn't come up with that quarantine analogy until like a week ago. I, and I, you know, I really stopped to focus as, as hard as I should on what these families go through. I mean, I'm aware of it, but you know, when you, uh, Centauri knows this. I recently had a, a, a nasty fall and I broke my foot and so I'm in a cast, which I'm not complaining about because there's so much stuff going on in the world. But it was funny. I went to the, the Mayo Clinic one day, which is a ghost town, and I'm in a wheelchair and I had to go to the restroom. And so I go into the men's room and for the first time I have a real use for an ADA bathroom. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, I I get it now. I get it. <laughs> Oh, the, yeah, the, the, this, is, this is great. <laughs> um, you know, so um, it is important to, to keep perspective and challenge yourself on it because sometimes you you may find, I mean, I found out through the analogy of the quarantine stuff, I, I hadn't been thinking about the stuff as hard as I thought I was. Yeah, appreciate that. So, Charles, how how can people get involved? Um, I guess, how can they come tour the facility? How can how can if, if, if they know of a child who they, who they think would, would really enjoy it and how can they, how can they help your, help your cause grow? Well, I, I appreciate you asking. So, uh, as with any 501c3 in this day and age, of course, financial support is important. Uh, if they go to buildthecave.org, um, Colton Cal is a little bit unusual to spell, so I don't want to spell it all out for your listeners, but if they go to buildthecave.org, uh, that gets you onto our website. It does take you directly to the donate page, but of course you can navigate around, uh, go to our press page, uh, find uh, films of uh, past graduates, uh, parents, uh, volunteers, and find out all about uh, what we do. You know, we are coming up at the end of the year. Uh, of course, times are very uncertain, and so we don't know exactly which way this is going to go, but we do expect by the end of the year, we are working right now out of a 5,000 square foot rented facility in South Phoenix, but we plan to upgrade to a 25,000 square foot mansion with crime fighting cave inside of it on our very own five acre parcel. We think that those plans will be um, uh, approved by the city of Phoenix by late fall. And LGE is our contractor. Candelaria Design has been our architect. And we plan to, to press ahead with it. So obviously right now, times being what they are, it's really not very easy to get people into the cave. You know, we just, particularly since our populace is so, you know, they're, they're one of the peop, uh, groups of uh, people in society right now that are most at risk. So we don't have the facility open now, but we encourage people to contact us. There's of course a contact form on the 
website or, you know, you can contact me through uh, Facebook and, uh, you know, we'd love to answer questions for you. Maybe, you know, the people uh, that are listening, nobody who knows somebody who needs a virtual tour. Um, so uh, another one to keep under your hats, one of the things that we did on our virtual tour yesterday, which was our 514th family, is we included a certificate that says, you know, at a future point in time, uh, the family can certainly come and uh, take a tour of the cave, either as part of a larger group or individually. So, you know, we plan to make this something that's really for Phoenix and building the new facility. Uh, we want it to be something more than just, you know, uh, a rich guy's mansion out of a comic book. We want to share it with other nonprofits that maybe need a place to uh, throw a fundraiser. We know what it's like to be a small nonprofit and have a tough time getting traction. Uh, maybe we, it's, it would be something that we can make available to the governor, to the mayor, or other people that are maybe entertaining dignities. We really want it to be something that comes to re represent something, though. We're not going to be calling it, you know, the Millionaire's Mansion or something like that. The, the true name of the facility we will be building is the Monument to Compassion, because that is the centerpiece of everything we do to be compassionate as we can. So for anybody who gets in contact with us, whether they be a charity or an individual who knows somebody who might need our help, uh, we are looking for ways to do that. So please reach out to us. We'd love to be of help in any way we possibly can. Awesome. Centauri, what else? No questions on my end. Just thank you, Charles. I, I, it's such a phenomenal program, and really the kids are uh, so transformed and inspired by the, the evening. So keep on doing what you do, and thanks for doing it. Guys, thanks for having me today. It's great chatting with you. Yeah, we appreciate it, Charles. Thanks, as always, for listening. Go to buildthecave.org. Check out all the incredible things that Charles and the Colton Cowell Foundation are working on. Check out the Monument to Compassion. What a project, Charles. Thank you again. Hey, no problem. My pleasure, guys. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.